The opening music is 1088, and it was recorded by our guest today, Matt Beckley. I met Matt Beckley, I'd say, 10 years ago through a mutual friend. Shout out to John Stamos. John's always introduced me to some of my favorite people. What I find when I interview friends that I never really do a podcast with is I I seem to learn more about them. I keep learning more and more stuff that I never know, even if I hang out with them every day. Things just happen on the show, and I hope they do. So, you know, it's interesting. This episode dives a little bit into music. Matt Beckley, if you don't know the name of the person, has produced some of the biggest pop stars in the world, as well as been on tours around the world and constructed some of the most amazing songs that I've ever heard. I had a great time making this episode and catching up with Matt. I hope you enjoy it. Why do you have uh, two fairly large doctor figurines on your uh, on your kitchen counter situation? Those are here? those are from the Twilight Zone, where the world was ugly and mm. the girl was beautiful. You know the story? Wow, oh. it's amazing. It's basically a girl that has her face wrapped from head to toe. Oh yeah, and she's laying in this bed, and these doctors, just their hands and utensils, keep coming in. And the reveal at the end is they take the bandages off and she looks like Grace Kelly. And they go, no change. And they drop the utensils and they're all disappointed. And she's stunning. And then it cuts to them and they're hideously ugly. And that's, I've just always been obsessed with the show. So I got the dolls. Well, they're kind of scary looking, right? They are kind of scary at looking. At night, they're really weird. That's that's fucked up, man. I remember when this used to be a safe place to come. <laughs> it's <laughs> still is, safe. This is a good place to hang out. We say uh, in the opening of the show, we say... Coming to you from somewhere in Bel Air, California. <laughs> you can describe somewhere. Yeah, what I, is somewhere to you? <laughs> some, somewhere is this really cool. So this is one of my favorite places. It's, uh, it's just one of those groovy houses on, on, on the canyon streets that have, you know, like the living space above the garage and the backyard right up against the hill. It's, uh, your place is beautiful, man. There's I always a- say, people say, what is it? I say, it's a shoebox made of wood and glass and you park underneath it. <laughs> that's that's pretty pretty accurate. <laughs> do you remember like uh do you remember when we met? Where we met? Yeah, I think we met up uh at our friend John's place up in the up in the hills or up at a dinner. But he was like Yeah. He's like, sit next to Patrick, you're gonna dig this guy. Ah. Um, that's sweet. Yeah. Has it been ten years or less? It's probably been about ten years. Yeah. Did you grow up in LA? Yes and no. I was I was born at, at Cedars. Um, like right when my mom and my stepdad got married, they lived in Beverly Hills, but like right after they got married, we moved out to, we downsized and moved out to Pasadena and it's a really beautiful neighborhood. There's, you know, um, there's like people with horses and stuff like that. It was like, it like, it doesn't feel like Los Angeles. Oh yeah. You grew up outside of Pasadena. It's, Mm -hmm. it's not. It's not L.A. like what you think. No, I LA. get it. I had the pressure of being from Canoga Park, which they called the ghetto. Right. And we would find Laurel Canyon. And when we got to the other side, we were in paradise. Yeah. You know? No, it really it really <laughs> is. I remember I had a, um, I'd see my dad on weekends. And my dad lived in Sherman Oaks. Mm. Um, my girlfriend in high school, she went to that school, Buckley. Okay. She ended up living right behind, uh, right off a tower, right behind the Beverly Hills Hotel. Mm-hmm. And so I would have to drive at like two in the morning to get back before curfew, that drive from basically the Beverly Hills Hotel mm-hmm. back to, you know, Monrovia in like 30 minutes, which is absurd. It's like driving. I'm, there's one, no reason to be alive today. And two, no reason that I shouldn't have gotten ridiculous speeding ticket. Yeah. I, I like, there's a couple of times where that there's that huge hairpin turn down Benedict where mm-hmm. I would, I've spun my car around like multiple times, just like taking how old are you? How old were you when you started driving? Were you legal? Or yeah, did I was, you no, start? I was legal. I was 16. And so when does music introduce itself? Um, music had always been around because my dad's a musician. Of course. Um, and there's this image, especially because the kind of music he does that I, I think that people thought that we kind of would sit around the fireplace strumming acoustic guitars and, and, you know, singing Crosby, Shields and Nash songs. And, and truthfully, I never did that with my dad. Um, so I would go on tour with him during the summers because mm-hmm. he would tour all like the festival circuit and and the 
you know, like state fairs and shit mm-hmm. like that. Because back in the the 80s, when I was like six, seven years old, America wasn't in their heyday. Mm-hmm. And so it was, you know, taking all those gigs that you, you can just get. And, yeah. And being in a bus crisscrossing the country and, and stuff and playing state fairs. That's and amazing. so, uh, but he would let me up on stage for Horse with a Name to play tambourine. And right oh around 11 God. and 12 years old, you start to realize that the tambourine isn't going to get like the girls quite like you were hoping it would. So you just started <laughs> like, I was like, man, I feel like a guitar player. That's really... But I always loved music, you know, right. like I like my earliest memories are, are driving down Mulholland with my pops and and um, listening to police songs. And, and he's a big Beach Boys guy. And, and he would be like dissecting Beach Boys songs to me going like, like, listen to how Brian's like bringing in the congas on like verse two. Like, you see why he's doing that? And I didn't realize it at the time, but I was getting this um, really great, you know, schooling in pop songs and pop history and what makes a song. And I, I just kind of assumed everybody knew these things because when you're a kid. Yeah. You're so egocentric, you don't know that anybody's different. But you know? your dad's like a functioning Juilliard. <laughs> yeah, no, he, re- he really is. I, I, I think people underestimate just how musically intelligent he is. Yeah. Um, from the outside, musicians get it because they can hear it, and they're like, oh, yeah, those guys actually knew what they were doing. But but he was playing piano since he was three years old. He's absurdly savant. And, and It was deep and, in the gene. It's something that he just had to do. Yeah, you know, he's mid to late 60s, and, and America's celebrating their 50th anniversary this year. You know, it, it's... If you grow up with a baseball player dad, like you learn probably little insides about swings and reading pitches and stuff that most normal people don't get. Or you go against it, right? Some you can have the path of not doing what anyone does that's older because it's not cool. A hundred percent. Well, that was the other thing. It's like when I first saw Spinal Tap as a kid, I didn't I didn't realize it was a mockumentary because I I thought it was just a documentary because I'd actually seen all of that stuff actually. <laughs> actually happen and did you feel like it was corny or weird or not no it's just it was just that's um that's how life was so so uh we spent a lot of time with the beach boys as a kid Mm -hmm. um which is how i know our friend john yeah and you know for years they were just those silly dudes with the cheerleaders and the hawaiian shirts and i kind of thought it was cheesy and it wasn't until like I was in my like early 20s or you know college and being in bands and stuff and going shit i was I was on buses and planes with this like absolute, yes, like the most genius of all genius people, and it was. It's kind of like when you, when you have like a near death experience that you don't know, and you look back and you go, "Shit," you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, how did I? Did you was, did you have idols growing up or somebody you looked up to when you were this kid? Or you know, um, I mean, quite frankly, on different levels, uh, both my dad and my stepdad were incredibly mm-hmm. important. I, I looked up to them both for very different reasons, but I got lucky that they're both two self-made examples. So Mm -hmm. I learned that no matter what you want to do, whether it be music or business or whatever, you've got to wake up in the morning and you've got to bust ass all day. Mm -hmm. And, and that's how anything gets done. Uh, and the fact that now somebody pays me to do it, Mm -hmm. like, it's like the, the the shit that you did for fun when you were 12 years old that you get actually paid to do. Yeah. I think that's the real hustle. Used to cry. Used to bow our heads then, wonder why. Now you're gone, I guess I'll carry on. Make the best of what you've left to me. Left to me. That's my that's a question you're leading me to, which is construction of a song. Okay. I mean, there's two parts really, because it's construction of a song is one thing. Construction of a monster pop song is another thing to me. I mean, maybe they're the same and they have the same ingredients, but like I want to hear from you. Um I wish I knew better. The guys that are really genius at it, the Dr. Luke's, the Max Martins, um, who you've worked with. Uh, yeah. Um, I've been lucky enough to be in the room with those guys. And, mm-hmm. and it's a bit like what I was saying when you're around around those guys. Like you'd see how the people that are actually doing it actually do it. Mm-hmm. And what's important to them and what's their priorities and shit. In terms of constructing a song, I think a lot of people want like actual music building blocks and make it easy of like, oh, put down these four chords on a guitar and then you put down the drums and, and that's how it's done. 
but it's been my experience that the formula is far more emotional than that. It's far less about the how and far more about the why. Wow. So like, you know, back in the 80s, if the chorus was coming up, there'd be like a reverse symbol. Shock. And mm-hmm. it kind of gave you the it kind of gave you the emotional a nudge. Uh, a nudge that, oh, oh shit, here comes the part. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now in recently with EDM and, and all that stuff, it's been like lasers. Like, you know, it's, it hasn't been a reverse symbol, but it's the laser that's leading <laughs> you up to the drop that's yeah. you know. But it's the same thing. You know what I mean? When I look at it, I'm not like, so many people are like, oh my God, what laser are you guys using? And to me, it's not the laser. It's the, why are you using the laser? Like, what what is the point? Like, you're building up to this chorus part. Why do you have the chorus? And like, Uh so one of those things that like, you know, up on Mulholland and and Pop's car listening to Beach Boys records or police records, like, he always kind of taught me like, the verse is where you tell your story and the chorus is where you get people to sing along. You know, like the chorus is the thing that people remember. Um, to me, the important thing about music is how you connect with your audience. Like, I don't want to make music for people that that just like went to Berkeley College of Music. Like, right. I love making music because I think it's a way that you can connect to people on a more intimate, honest, deeper level where words fail. Yeah. And so, like, when I hear something like a chorus, my chorus is the part where you connect with people and you make them feel what you're feeling and you give them a chance to sing along. Like, music's a very uh, collaborative thing with me. Like, I want to be involved with the audience does that make sense yeah absolutely um i went through such a hard time with pop music because i was this um insecure pet petulant child uh, especially when i was 16 and i started running around new york i was always um just kiboshing anything that wasn't a led zeppelin or black sabbath or dirty and then you know uh early days like there was the madonnas and stuff and i had such a hard time putting my head around the construction of their music, I felt like it was made, you know, simply, which was just being ignorant. Because the older I get, the more complicated I, I'll like seriously listen to a Britney Spears's Every Time song mm-hmm. and think it's just really on. It's amazing, and and I would have never felt that way as a kid. I had to grow out of my, you know, I did it with food, I did it with everything. Like this is bad, this is good, which is an ignorant, insecure kid. I mean, that's a really profound realization. I think that's a double-edged sword um, because growing up as a kid and you listen to those bands. One of the most powerful things about music is the t-shirt because like, so I was a kid, like the I, t-shirt. I really dug Jane's Addiction. I really dug Nine Inch Nails. It was a little bit outside of when people were like, you know, Pearl Jam or whatever. But when you have this is good, this is bad. The benefit of that is, is if I would go to a place wearing a t-shirt or Jane's Addiction t-shirt or Nine Inch Nails t-shirt, some other kid wearing a Jane's Addiction t-shirt, Nine Inch Nails t-shirt comes up to you and starts talking to you. And all of a sudden you realize that there's like, misfits out there like you that people like the same stuff you know what i mean like and ironically i think you could do it for alfred's coffee or something like that but music (laughs) you know what i mean like oh shit i go to alfred's coffee too like which one melrose you know i had such a long relationship with early jane's addiction it was like because i saw perry the the transformation from wearing a dress looking like a beat up transvestite and then the next show a shaved head looking kind of like a tough Latin American wearing dicky coveralls. Jane's took a long time to kick. A lot of people were worried about me. Right. They're like, you're really obsessed with this. I, I, w- I was fanatic. I mean, yeah. I, I was I was fanatic. Like uh, Dave Navarro was my favorite guitar. I lost my virginity to a Jane's addiction. He was record. my least favorite member. <laughs> yeah, believe me, I believe I, I hear that a lot. I think I think that he's I think I think that he gets a, a lot of shit. Um but he's. I just missed the Dave that was a chubby guy on the side of the stage. From Notre that Dame High played School. Played very well to the fashion forward, um, perfectly in shape. Um, they, look, they looked like they were going to like steal your lunch money, fuck your girlfriend, and then wear her clothes. And yeah. they were like, and they were like a band, man. They were a gang. Like if they came into a room, like people would be like, oh shit, like that's Jane's addiction. And we're a little bit scared of them. Yeah. And I miss that. It's a bit like when you were a kid. And Halloween, like you knew was fake, but maybe it was real. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, is there like, is there actually going to be like a he goblin He channeled or a massive movement. I remember the early shows at like John Ford and this like Hollywood Bowl moments. And I would watch whatever I couldn't see as a kid, but it was fascinating. You um, know? God, I mean, they were, they were just, they were such a breath of fresh air. Um, I think y- you and I are both old enough to see a story of, of 
heroin addictions ending yeah. genius too soon. You know, I love early Van Halen. Solo David Lee oh Roth isn't particularly God. very good. Also, Eddie Van Halen's a good comparison back to the Navarro thing. As an ignorant ear and someone that just listens and doesn't understand construction, I feel like Eddie Van Halen was like in a shag carpet, paneled wall, broken amplifier environment. Mm -hmm. And then he becomes so musical once he gets older and older that he's musically better than anything out there, but it's boring. That's the thing too. I mean, uh, I think that was part of the Kurt thing. It's like as you get as you get successful, um, you lose. It's hard to have that angsty, don't give a shit thing when you've got three mortgages and yeah. and, a, and a wife and kids, and and your your priorities change. Look, you and I both have mm -hmm. been in the situation where we're like, those guys are idiots. When they get successful, they do all this stupid shit, and then all of a sudden, when you're successful. You're leasing Porsches, and you're—you know what I mean? Like you're no, doing like, yeah, you, you're it, like. What also blows my mind is is that the God's a little joke to me is you don't know when you're doing song remains the same, you know you're not aware of this uh, or songs in the key of life with Stevie Wonder isn't aware that God's in the room. I, I am. I have a weird addendum to that though. So like, yeah, help the, me out. The first, um, the first number one that I ever really got to work on was Girlfriend by Avril Lavigne, mm -hmm. um, and I remember being in with Luke. And I remember like day three, that shit coming through the speakers and going, oh man, I'm working on my first number one song. Like there's something different. I remember the first time I heard- You can feel it. Yeah. And, and, and I, don't think, I don't think it's any sort of like brilliant musical ear. Like mm -hmm. I just think, man, when you're listening to something that big, that's going to like take over, not just kind of like squeak to number one, but like take over for- like that song ended up being massive, you know. Mm -hmm. um, does it? Does it start with lyrics? Does it start with um, the song? Would it, I mean? I'm sure it's approached differently with you. Was, Do you approach from lyrics first, song construction first? It's not that specific. A lot of those things um, start off as beats. You know, somebody's just got basic chord changes and a basic beat, and then they come up with an idea. Like I remember. It's uh, like the foundation to a house. Yeah, it's exactly. the groundwork in. Exactly. But I remember being in, in, in a rented, in Luke's rented Lexus, and he played me what would become the I Kissed a Girl beat for Katy Perry. Right. And like before even that stuff came on, and it was just like the basic idea. It was like, oh man, like you just knew instantly. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that, oh, okay, shit, this is going to like, you're going to have to change your number. This is going to change your life. This is going to be know? a difference. Yeah. Is um, there is there a way to explain, do you see a big difference between, you grew up in classic rock and then pop music becomes this phenomenon. If you had to explain, you know, that transition, what would it be? Once again, I, I think it's the um, why, not the how. I mm. think that if you listen to classic rock, if you listen to how these songs are structured, you know, you, you look at that Blue Monday song, um, you know, how does New Order, feel? yeah. And then um, they did it total synth, you know what I mean, metal version. And the song was still dope. Like, I remember in 2008 when I was touring with Katie, um, we're on Warp Tour. And I think there was a time where like four different bands were playing Since You've Been Gone mm -hmm. in like four entirely different styles. And it was awesome every time. You know, right. I think the actual construction's similar. I think that if you have a modern house or you have an old Tudor, you still need the four walls and you still need the roof and you still need the fireplace. It's just like, how do you wrap them for your aesthetic? But I think the fundamental thing, so so the, the idea that classic rock is that different than pop, it's that different from things, from at least my perspective, mm -hmm. it's all basically the same shit. Mm -hmm. It's just, you've just wrapped it differently. There's still houses, do you, you know? Do you approach doing music for films differently than you would for radio or for an artist? Film music, which I don't get to do enough of, is is one of my favorite things because there's something really liberating about trying to make somebody else's vision come to life. You know what I mean? And putting yourself in a different character. I mean, there's only so many songs that I can write about Next Girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Before I'm, I'm bored of myself. Mm -hmm. um, that's why like everybody gets sued for songs is because the songs are either about girls or fast cars or how your fast car reminds you of your girl. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> over, you know, like for the past 50 years, it's the same shit really. Yeah. So like, um, everyone's like, Oh, I already wrote that song. It's like, yeah, there's only 12 notes. Everybody's already wrote that song. You right. know, like it's the same thing. So when you're doing something about with film, um, it comes back to music speaking more than words can and, mm -hmm. and affecting you more on an emotional level. Mm -hmm. Like, to exercise that muscle of how do I create this emotion or how do I highlight this emotion? That is the real win of music. And, and so 
I was lucky enough in college, I, I was friends with this guy, John Foreman, who plays in this band Switchfoot. Mm-hmm. And I remember him coming to my dorm room and teaching me about music a little bit and how to play piano. I had this little Wurlitzer keyboard in my dorm room. And I was really worried about like, oh, what chords go here? And, and, and he was like, no, man. He's like, look, if I go to this chord to this chord, how does it make you feel? Like, that's the five. He's like, if I go here, this is four. Like, what kind of tension does that make you feel? And it's heavy. Like, even if I'm producing, it's like, how does this drum sound? Not how does it sound, but how does it make you feel? Wow. Like, if you listen to that big echoey drum sound at the beginning of My Hero by the Foo Fighters, it charges you up in a certain way. That snare in those Def Leppard records, like, you know, sounds like an arena. So you feel like you're an arena. You feel like you're surrounded by 100,000 people, like, going nuts. Right. Whereas, like... uh you know, the a drum sound on a Steely Dan song makes you feel like you're in a studio with a bunch of like really talented nerds and and, right. and does that make sense? Yeah. And so, and, and so to me, it's not like oh, what is that drum part? It's like oh, how does that drum part make you feel? You I know? went and through the, so much Steely Dan, I just couldn't let it go. <laughs> history. Patrick and I have gone back yeah. and forth on this a lot. Like I respect the hell out of those guys. Mm-hmm. I don't remember a single time ever like going, I want to put on a Steely Dan record. It just doesn't. I feel like, I mean, the vocal just brings me back to like early days with my mom and being confused kid and all that kind of stuff. It has so much association in his vocal. Right. (laughs) You know, but but, that's the cool, that's the cool thing, you know, is one of those underappreciated things where you see all the tributes and you realize how many of your favorite bands wouldn't be your favorite bands had that band not happened. And, but like, I have so much appreciation for them because so many people that I have appreciation for distilled what they were doing. Like the engineer in me and the producer in me, like, really appreciates how how good they they can get it. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, if those Steely Dime records came out now and they were able to Pro Tools things and put everything in tune, which I'm sure they would have done, mm-hmm. it it almost be probably too much. You know Absolutely. I, mean? I mean, I feel like there still is a studio in the room. I feel like with Steely Dan, there's still f- all the instruments are set up and mic'd and there's something happening. No, you just felt like they were the best dudes in a room. Yeah. Yeah, which is which I which I appreciate. I also like I'm only a middling guitar player, so I I saw um, a buddy of mine, this guy uh Michael Clifford just had a guitar come out in Gibson. And I was watching a live stream. They they gave him a, a very well-deserved signature model. And he was talking about at the unveiling of it how he was excited because he hoped that like it would lower the barrier of entry to let kids get in and, and find the joys of playing guitar. Because like when he was a kid, Gibson endorsed Slash and you'd look at Slash and be like, well, I'm never going to be that fucking guy because you're just like, that's, that's beyond what I can, what I can get to. Right. You know, is there a huge divide between independent and record label? Is there a huge difference there? Or how does that work in, yeah, 2019? Is there? No, I think, um, you need record labels because you can't go to Bank of America and go, Hey man, I need a $250,000 $250,000 loan to get my band off the ground. Mm-hmm. I actually think that record labels get a bad rap because everyone's like, yeah, these deals suck. But it's like, all right, start a record label. And then if you have to start a record label, you realize how much money it goes into having to pay for the studio and having to pay a publicist to get something released and get it above the din and, and get it on Spotify and get it. And you realize that what a long shot that is. Mm-hmm. And so those deals have to be so gnarly because they have to cover the 200 people that didn't make it the yeah. one dude that does did. So yeah, it sucks if you're the dude that makes it, but there's, I know so many bands that got, you know, a million dollars from a record label and the record didn't even come out. So like these days it's so great with Spotify and all of these other things that you can really record a mu- music in your bedroom and get it out there. I love that anybody can make music. And I, I love autotune because once again, it's not the how it's the why I mm-hmm. love the fact that as someone who can't sing very good, I have a way to fix myself so I can get the idea that I want out there. Because to me, that's the most important part. Like, I'm less impressed with the virtuosity and more impressed with the message, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yes. Um, so I'm grateful that there's those tools that are now easily available for anybody who's got the idea in their head or their heart to be able to get it out there. But a lot of times with record labels, you still need the promotion. You still need the, you still need all that other shenanigans to, to be able to get your music the best shot to be heard. Mm-hmm. The flip side of that is, I think if you're sitting on something truly brilliant, um, you can't keep it down. There's this girl, Christina Perry, that I got to MD a So You Think You Can Dance thing for, and she had this song called Jar of Hearts, and she was like a waitress or something at um, at a cafe in Melrose, and she'd like written this song, and she played it for somebody who knew a choreographer at 
So You Think You Can Dance and was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And she was able to parlay that into somebody producing it and giving her like a little, uh, uh, just a rough demo that they could sing it to. And then when it, they played it on the show, like America went nuts. Like, I think if you're truly sitting on a song as beautiful and as brilliant as Jar of Hearts, like the record labels come to you. And I think that's a lot of the thing, uh, yeah. the, the, the disconnect with people is that they're, it's somebody else's fault why their music hasn't been heard or whatever. And the truth is, if you're really sitting on something really brilliant, right? like if you met a kid and you saw a show that was fantastic, you would be like, yo, you should meet my kid, Ralph. Like he really crushed it the other night and his songs are incredible. And then if I heard him and I was like, man, you should really hear Ralph. I would like send it to somebody who could actually probably do something with it. And then they would go, oh my God, you should really hear Ralph. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think if something's truly brilliant, you can't keep it down. And I know what it feels like. I hadn't seen it in so many years. And oddly, about five years ago was the last time I felt it. And it was a band called Deer Hunter. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Random. No, exactly. Yeah. Because it was so much looser than their recorded music. It was just kind of like if there were a three-minute song in the concert, there were seven to eight minutes each. They breathed a lot. And I liked it. It just drew me into that feeling. Yeah. Like, oh, you guys got to see this. I was their free promoter for like three years after that. And then it just goes away until you, you know, figure out what's next. I mean, you look at that band Heim, you know, um, like those sisters have been brilliant. That anybody who saw them was like, oh, shit, have you seen the Heim show? You know what I mean? And yeah. like, that's the thing that gets lost. It's not about the promotion or all of that stuff. And all that stuff can help. But like... If something's truly great, like those Heim sisters are truly great. It's like cream rises to the top in anything. Yeah. The, the cool thing about music is I genuinely believe it's the, the last meritocracies that we have in our society where no matter how you look, I mean, I know everyone thinks it's an image-based thing. No. But it's not like if you've got the goods, people will listen, you know? I remember working early with uh, Alicia Keys and the stylist that put her in something suggestive and Clive Davis said, we don't need to do that here. Um, that's about seven records away when we have to show her shoulders and arms. And <laughs> he, he had this master plan. He's like the vocal and the lyrics are too good to have to uh, shine it up. It's beautiful as it is, you know? Yeah, like real talent. I remember, God, that's right. I remember when she... Before she even broke, everybody was just talking about this girl that was just that yeah. just had it. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Julia Michaels is a great, I think, example of that. Uh, she she was songwriting for other people and doing demos. And I remember recording her when she was like 17, 18 years old. And it was one of those things where her demo vocals were so good that we had a hard time beating it with whoever the star was that came in. To the point where it takes it takes a couple of years, but eventually people are like, let's just make the fucking Julia record. Do right. you know what I mean? And and now she's crushing it. And and uh, Bruno Mars was the same way. Bruno Mars was writing for other people. Everybody. You know, there, was, there was a time when you know Bruno Mars couldn't get his own voice on a song, and now he's getting pitch songs. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, it takes a while and it takes a ton of work, but I truly believe if you're Bruno or Julia or these people, it'll happen. It happens. You know what I mean? I just don't think you can keep a lid on something that brilliant. For mm -hmm. I mean, Katie was dropped from what three labels before it happened. Right. But like. Um, I know Lana tried three times yeah. and then hit with video games and all that kind of stuff. Once again, I think that if you're truly, if you truly have the goods, then it like. It shines. Yeah. Is there a favorite artist that you worked with? Do you have favorites or Man. is it just the experience? I don't work on anything that I can't find some value in. I've been lucky enough where I haven't done anything for the, for the money. Um, I think that there is an art to finding what you like about that person. Like you might not like everything about the artist, but you try to find what you what you're passionate about in the song. And I can see so much in your eyes. There are words we both could say.
like being uh, put up for a Grammy? Did that freak it was, you out, or what was it like? It was. I remember my friend Spencer and Kara texting me. The Grammy you're talking about was for the um, Camila for Best Pop Vocal, and then she was all, her album was also nominated for Best Pop Vocal Album. That's a girl that you just you just root for. I got to work with her way back in the day, like on one of the very first Fifth Harmony songs, and just right out of the jump, she was such a star. And all those girls are really talented. But um, you saw it early when you met I, I, her. Everybody did. But what I love about her is that, um, first of all, it was my first, which is really amazing. And, and like I said, I still remember my buddies, uh, Spencer and Kara, um, texting me in the morning. And I, I thought we would be nominated for a different category. And when I saw that we weren't, I was like, oh, I didn't. I was like, what a bummer, man. Like, <laughs> I thought this was a good chance and, and I missed you out. You found the. <laughs> and, and then they called me up and they're like, congratulations. And I was like, no, we missed it. And they're like, what are you talking about? And they sent me the link. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, it was it was pretty awesome. My my dad's got one. And I'm embarrassed to admit how bad I want one because right. I grew up with seeing one on the shelf. And I'm like, I want to. You want to get one of those. Um, so it was such an We actually cut Havana in my backyard. Um, yeah. Uh, but But really. Uh, the reason why that song goes is Frank Dukes and Pharrell and, and I mean, obviously Camilla, but like Frank Dukes is really the dude. Did that, he do that, other stuff I know? Oh, he's done. He's the guy right now. He's right. done a million things. But I loved like when I first met him in the studio, I was like, he's not, you know, he's a big deal because he doesn't try to be a big deal. Like he doesn't roll in with like a crazy entourage or anything like that. He's just a. The best do this. Yeah. Like yeah. You, that's how you can tell that the guy's like, oh, like what stuff have you worked on? He's like, oh, I just. Uh, did that Drake record that just broke all the records? You know what I mean? Like, and he's yeah. like, you know, you have to, yeah. you have to, you have ask. to pull it out of him. But that's a, a really poignant example of, of what we were talking about earlier, and that Havana wasn't a single. Um, they'd actually released this other song called OMG at the same time as a single, and that's what they they pushed behind. And I hadn't worked on OMG; I just worked on Havana. And she really was like, "This song matters to me." Like, she's especially for being so young, was so on top of her shit, still is. And uh, knows what she wanted her sound to be. She basically A&R'd her own record. She picked all the songs and she really fought for Havana. And so she like made them put Havana out in parallel with OMG, even though it wasn't the single. Mm-hmm. And OMG took off. It got that that bump and got way more plays at the very beginning because it had all the push and everything like that. But all of a sudden Havana starts kind of like creeping up like Tortoise in the Hairstyle. And, and now, now, I guess as of like two weeks ago, it's the single most streamed song for a female solo artist in wow. history. And that's one of those things that you can't fake. It wasn't a single. It wasn't about the promotion. It was just like people heard it. They told other people. They connected with it. And people kept playing it. You know how what I mean? It, like you can't how fake does those it numbers. work now? The old days used to be able to, I guess, you give a little money on the side to K-Rock. And then it became a music video. And then it became an anthem. Is there What's a the model now? Is it that you have to rank high on Spotify? Uh, Spot- Spotify because, I mean, I think that there's people that can buy plays on Spotify. But it's so big that I think it's hard to in that ocean and make a difference you know what i mean like i feel like it just has to respond you know um i found out today um my buddy mitchy has a song called broken he's in this band called lovely the band and as of today it's the longest song charting on the billboard alternative charts Hmm. that's because everybody who heard that song played it for somebody else and it made them feel a certain way and everybody kept playing it like i don't think that there's any amount of buying radio play or video or whatever I think if it's meant to to react, mm-hmm. it reacts. And, and here's the here's the thing where people get confused. I think if something doesn't react, that doesn't mean it's not good. Like um, some of my favorite favorite projects I've worked on, um, I go back to this band called Low out of Minnesota that are this like one of my favorite records you did. Thank you. And see, and that's the thing. And a lot of people people are like, "What are you most proud what of?" What was like, that record called? It was called Come On. Come um, on. And, I and you co- recorded it in a church. Yeah, in Duluth, Minnesota. That was one of my favorites. They're, and, and they are just brilliant. They're brilliant people. Uh, it's a husband and wife named Alan and, and Mimi. And uh, What was the first track you gave me um, on the low to just kind of hear? That's my, was so it my try to style. Sleep? It's uh, just was really the one that we did the video for intense. No, I don't know. It's kind of like really dark. I mean, honestly, everything they do is really dark and intense. And that, I played that like in my car about six thousand times. Um, yeah, they're 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 just so brilliant, and I was such a big fan of them. Um, but I know that they're not going to sell. They're not going to stream three point six billion things. No, that doesn't mean that they're not just absolutely fucking brilliant and great. Yeah. And so 
just because something doesn't go big doesn't diminish its value. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's a mistake that people make. The, the cool thing about making pop music, because I'm a competitive dude, mm-hmm. is there's an objective chart for a subjective medium. If I release a low record, like Pitchfork can give it five stars, NME can give it two, and they're both right because art's in the eye of the beholder. If we weren't trying to make a record that were really was really arty. They just happened to be really arty people. Well, you know, are, that's the music yeah. that they make. It's not contrived at all. But I knew that going in. If you do a song for like Britney Spears, you're trying to make a pop song and there's no arguing whether it's a hit or not. Like you can see if it's on the chart and where it's on the chart and there's like an objective ruler. You can't argue whether a song is number one or not. It is or it isn't. Right. You know? Um, so it, there's two different things. But I think that the stuff that we did with Britney is every bit as valid as the stuff that we did with Lowe. And right. the, the validity and the quality of it can't be determined by a chart position. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, if you do a pop song, you can't argue the chart position. Like it's either there or it's not. Right. You know what I mean? There's a, there's a real, there's a real signpost about how well you did on it. Do you prefer, do you have a, a preference between performing live music and being in the studio and creating music or are you like no, man, all I, of it's part of it? All of it's part of it. I just love making me. There's so much, it's so fun. It's like the difference, I think, between making a movie and doing musical theater or, mm-hmm. or theater. Like if you do the theater and you see all these great actors, they want to do Broadway because you get this interaction. Like, Well, real there's time. no cut in uh, Broadway. You have to keep going. In, in film, you can just cut the shit out of things and get it right. And I think that both are valid. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's it's like making a painting or a photograph, you know, mm-hmm. like they're both valid terms of expression. And if I didn't play live, I think I would go nuts. If I didn't work in the studio, I think I would go nuts. How long did you tour with Katy Perry's project? God. That was long. That was I mean, it was at least a year and some change. Felt like a long time. Yeah, it was um because I'd known I used to do Hotel Cafe with her like okay. pre-deal like we would just the two of us on acoustic guitars and I would sing her songs. Like she was, she was just a girl I'd met at the Viper room, you know, that had great songs. Mm -hmm. Um, And then weirdly she got connected with the team that I was working with to end up doing her record. But it was a a weird, like it was just so many synchronistic events. Her, uh, this girl, Jelly, who was kind of her A&R, who sadly just, just passed was Travis's sister-in-law. There was like all these, yeah, it's, it's this, it was just this weird hurricane of, connections and, and things. So I've been playing with her quite a long time. Um, How many bands have you toured with? A couple. I've played with a lot more bands than I've toured with, if that makes any sense. It like, does. I, I get like some of the best times I've had on stage was uh, I filled in for like a weekend or a week with this band called Family Force 5. Um, when I was playing with Katie, there's this band 303 that we shared a stage with on Warp Tour. We just become such good friends. Then they're like, hey, do you want to sit in and play guitar on a couple of songs? And then a week later, like Katie's drummer was playing along too. And then a week later, Katie's bass player was, you know, like all of a sudden we had a full band behind yeah. it and it was fun. So when I, weirdly, when I did the Family Force 5 thing, they were on tour too. And so they were like, hey, we don't have a guitar player. Do you want to just sit in with us for, you know, you know what I mean? Like yeah. I do a lot of like spot dates because I grew up on the road. I don't love traveling. The idea now of committing to something for two years and playing 150 shows a year is a bit beyond me well um, you'll miss so much production and time in the studio right well, you won't be able to do anything exactly and and that's that's the thing is i like i like the variety people are like oh do you like writing or do you like producing or do you like playing guitar live or do you like doing this and the answer is just yes i like all of it right and i remember as a kid uh somebody i really respect going like hey man you really need to just be like are you going to be the vocal producer guy or are you going to be a mixer or are you going to be the guitarist you have to decide and it was the best advice that I'm glad I didn't take because the only reason why I've survived <laughs> in like this crazy musical thing is that like, oh, production work is shy, but somebody needs a guitar player, you know, like, oh, guitar work is shy, but somebody needs production. That's how know? I've done my career. You know, it's just like you kind of people are like, why don't you just go do commercial work? And you're like, well, then I won't be able to do all the things that you said you'd like from me. Well, that's that's the other thing is that like, you know, like like I got to produce a 303 track because they liked playing on stage with me like I got to you know what I mean like yeah. like one thing informs the other and here's the weird thing is I think fan bases can throw a lot of hate sometimes of like oh we love this band but we hate this band or oh we think but the guys in low love the Avril Lavigne shit and the Katy Perry stuff and right. Katy Perry I know loves low and Fountains of Wayne and you know what I mean like mm-hmm. the actual artists there's like a game recognizes game thing mm-hmm. and so once again it's not the how it's the why like, I think the people that are really writing and really appreciating, like, Lowe can look at a Katy Perry song and appreciate how she's managing to get her message across in a completely different way, in the same way that Katy Perry can look at Lowe and go, yeah, this sounds totally different than this pop song that I'm doing 
but they're still they're still handling the why. They're mm-hmm. just going about the how in a completely different way. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Absolutely. So I think that I think that um, my experience has been with the people that are actually really good at shit. There's actually a lot less elitism. You know what I mean? Like I feel like an Annie Leibovitz would be far less likely to go, Patrick, why are you doing commercial and not the? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I think she would go. No, I totally understand because this weird thing that you did, this weird shot in downtown LA informed your ESPN cover story. Yeah, I did. My first thing was a book called Tar that had no relevance to any commercial work. And Levi's was like, can you make this um, Levi's? Yeah. You know, and I didn't know what that meant. And yeah, it's interesting. But I think that that's where they saw honesty in the work and then they wanted it to wrap around the concept they had. And I think that happens to virtually everybody. If you don't cross those rivers, what happens is you start making a copy of a copy mm-hmm. and it starts like kind of just getting a shittier version, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. It does. How many records have you produced? Oh, man. <laughs> I, you I, produced one for your dad? I did actually produce what one. What year? Dad. When did you do that? I don't know. But that's like a trip when the guy you'd always ask for What help. was that like going from kid watching to I'm the producer? That's intense. Uh, I'm not sure how that's credited, but, but, uh, factually it's um it's co-produced you know what i mean like of i course. i can't tell that guy <laughs> i can't tell that guy anything that he doesn't already know mm-hmm. you know um i think people that are good aren't the people that go shut up i know everything the people are good are good because they're constantly trying to learn new perspectives and new things yes. and i've worked on a couple of my dad's records now i worked on i produced a solo record for him i did some work on on one of the America records that this guy Adam Schlesinger and James Eha had done that that I thought was really good. Um, What's Eha from? Is he from? Smashing Pumpkins. That's what I thought. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's more about having someone hold you accountable and go, oh, you can do this better or hey, what if we do this? Or it's things that he probably would have thought of himself. You just mm-hmm. get there quicker because it's so much easier to see the forest for the trees when you're not the, the dude. That's, that's the genius of production, you mm-hmm. know? Um, was he able to not be like, you're my kid and just flow with it completely the opposite like he was just like sure like he's really he's really he's open, open. yeah he's yeah. constantly listening to new music and he's the one who turned me on to jane's addiction wow um he he turned me on to nine inch nails i remember him coming home from seeing like a nine inch nail show and telling me about this guy like ty razor or somebody that was like running around the stage with a spotlight and it's he's like gonna be fucking huge it's like unbelievable like you wouldn't think that that dude the chewing on a piece of grass guy would be super into nine inch nails but I remember there was like a year he would pick me up from from school on Fridays and we would just have like, you know, downward spiral or something going on in the back because he was like, holy shit, this is amazing. Who you are know? your favorites? Do you have a bunch of favorites? Yeah, man. Is there one that like, you know. In terms of production or in terms of artists? Artists. Uh, Katie was brilliant. Uh, Camila was brilliant. Um, Dr. Luke was brilliant in terms of a songwriting production thing. Um, that whole team, Benny Blanco, Ammo. Uh, Max Martin, Jay Cash, uh, all these songwriters that are that are making and producing beats today. Is there um, someone you learn more from than the other? Does someone <clears throat> give you something that you've taken for I, your own work? I've taken something from all of them. Right. You know, Benny was 17 when I met him in Virginia, and he was just this kid. Like he'd been doing like music for like porn films or something in the background. He'd done this thing called Bangers and Cash with this guy named Spank Rock that was just one of the nastiest beats that anybody had ever heard. And I remember when Luke signed him. And he like came to LA and now he's, he actually, as of today has the number one song. He did the song with Halsey and um, that just hit number one today, I think. Have you worked with Halsey? Did you do something or no? No, I haven't. I, uh. I've, I've met Ashley a couple of times. She's a, um, a sweetheart. Um, I haven't done anything with her yet. I would love to. I'm close with her, her management team. They're good friends of mine. Her manager literally lives a block away from me. Wow. Um, his dad was the Beach Boys road manager. Small And world. so like I actually grew up with his dad. So it's just weird how it all like comes together. But yeah. There's a couple of unsung guys. Uh, this guy, John Fields, who did all the Switchfoot records, he was right around when I first did, uh, uh, when I got my first Pro Tools rig. So he showed me a lot of like how to do Pro Tools. He's a, just a brilliant savant maniac who can play every instrument better than everybody else. And and he did Pink, he did Andrew WK, Party Hard. Like he's done all yeah. these things. Um, when I went from working with him to working with this guy, Rob Cavallo, who produced like all the Green Day records and Goo Goo Dolls and stuff. And once again, being in the room with the guy who won the producer of the year, I learned so much. And then when I started working from Luke, you know, like you get another level of education and things. And and like when I sit here and talk with you, like every time I sit down and talk with you, that's why I try to hang out with you so much. It's like I learned something 
new, you know, and and it's mutual. I do too. You can you can the lessons that I listen to you talk about how you approach photography, and it affects how I approach music. You know, I uh, a friend of mine's this girl Rihanna who owns a salon, and she's this like big celebrity hairstylist person, mm-hmm. and seeing how she approaches that inspires yeah. my music. You know what I mean? Everything like it's, does. Yeah. It's all art. You know, at the end of the day, it's all art. So I think, um, you know, the people that I know that are the best at what they do um, always seem to be constantly learning. Yeah, All of those- I always think it's good to be in in another space, like uh, something non-related. People would be like, oh, I don't want to bore you. I'm doing this today. And you're like, can I come? Yeah, no. And they're right. like, no, but it doesn't relate to your stuff. And you're like, that's why I want to come. I, yeah, and I and like I remember you taking me to a shoot and, and seeing um, just how you interacted with the talent on a shoot. Which uh, I couldn't tell you. I don't know. I'm not self-aware. Well, you know? 100%. It just but, starts happening. And this girl was like really sensitive like it was a shoot where people were being shot behind glass and like I just saw you kind of like take her into a corner and talk to her and like help define what the vision was going to be and make sure that she knew that she was protected and no matter what you were going to show the best parts of her not the worst parts of her and I really approach that when I have somebody in the booth there's things that you can learn about how do you make that person comfortable how do you let them know that they're that you guys are on the same page of the vision and that you're going to take care of them that you're not going to make somebody look bad like you're there to make somebody look good Tell me about Dales. What's Dales all about? I know you've been working on it for, I want to say you've been working on Dales for about a year and a half. Yeah. Two I, years? I don't know. You know weirdly, I'm the worst with time. Um, Dales was a, is a really great project. Um, this guy, Brian Dales, he's in a band called The Somerset. We just kind of, re- I'd actually met him. I was brought in to possibly work on a record of his for The Somerset years prior that weirdly John Fields, who I'd mentioned before, ended up producing. Honestly, I was kind of like, fuck this guy. You know what I mean? Like, right. the band's good. Like, I don't know if I can deal with this guy. And the then lead we, singer? Yeah. Brian, and, yeah, well, yeah, he's Brian. handsome. So the first thing I do with a handsome dude is hate him until he shows different. <laughs> um, years later, I just bought my house. Our girlfriends knew each other, and we were at Blue Jam Cafe in, in Sherman Oaks. We ended up talking, and he was at a weird point of his life, and I think the Somerset was winding down. And all musicians, especially if you've had a little bit of success early on, then when you don't have it, it's like, oh shit, what am I going to do? Like when you have to keep this moving. And, and he was, uh, for some reason, it was like, hey man, come over. Like, let's just listen. And we were, went to write a song. And instead of writing a song, we watched Brian Adams live videos for like four hours and talked about, once again, the why, like what we love about music. And then without a label or without anything else, I mean, the, the, he sings unbelievably good. He's one of the best singers on the planet. He's a He's very he's, nice. I liked him right away. Yeah, he's a great front man. Um, and he's a great songwriter. Where you guys, you guys made one record and you toured it? Yeah, well, honestly, we just kind of crank out songs in my backyard. Mm-hmm. And then we put them out. And if people dig them, cool. And this is the backyard where I did my um. Yeah, yeah. Where you did your first uh, voiceover. Yeah, full for disclosure. Matt did all the vocals for me for Polaroid Hotel. And he had a, uh assistant. And she had to cut out, I think, what was it? How oh, many ums? More than I can count. I had more two. Than, he uh, more than Tommy, she was getting paid. Tommy for. is starting to see the lack of delivery out of me. It's just like oh. we called it the um meter. I think there was twenty thousand per paragraph where I would just um um you know. But I think once again, like anything else, you do it once and then you realize that mistake. And I haven't heard hardly any ums. That was like the stuff. first real vocal booth I've been in. Yeah. Everything else is Radio Shack and a couple uh, pieces of tape. It was, uh, that it, was fun. It was, it was a lot of, it was a <laughs> lot of editing out ums, but. Um, so listen to the audio on the Polaroid Hotel book and Matt Beckley was my master. I got lucky and read it over there at his studio. If you see my love If you see my love If you see my love Tell her I'm done. Tell me about uh, current. Like, what are you doing? What um, do you want to do when you grow up? What are we doing this year? So Brian and I uh, did this thing called the Dales Hotel. I remember we were actually driving through Bel Air and we were like, oh man, 
we're never going to buy any of these houses making music. Like, you know? <laughs> um, and we were joking that we should start a hotel. Like, hotels is where people really, the Steve Wins of the world are really where you start making the money. Right. Uh, so we'd always joked about this Dale's Hotel thing. And then, and then at New Year's, we kind of put it in action, the Dale's Hotel, where it was me and Brian and a couple of our friends uh, kind of did this house band and we threw this New Year's Eve party. It kind of goes in with Dale's shows. We were doing all these Dale shows at, at little bars around town, no vacancy. Just to you have, did just a, to how many shows did you do at no vacancy? Uh, more than I can count. It's about as many ums as you had. Yeah. <laughs> but people would come out and like, we're like, man, we might be as, we might be having as much fun throwing the party as we are playing the show. Like it was kind yeah, of a, uh, a cultural moment. Yeah. This cohesive thing and bringing all our friends out. So with Dale's Hotel, it's a bit different from Dale's The Band because what we did was, um, we did a set of cover songs and we would have, you know, our buddies from bands way cooler than ours. Like, you know, uh, the guitars from Panic! at the Disco came up and guested on Buddy Holly. Um, uh, Ashton from Five Sauce played drums for Message in a Bottle. Uh, Zach from American Authors did play that funky music, White Boy. And we basically just had our friends. Guest were appearances. Dope and stuff. Yeah. And it was this really great vibe and it way oversold. Um, and so we kind of got hit up by a couple of clubs of like, hey, can you make this an actual thing? And so March 7th, uh, we're doing the first Dale's Hotel. Uh, you can you can find it. Where are you going to do it? At the Dale's Hotel. We're doing it at Sayers Club. Okay. Um, but we're it's not going to be the normal Sayers Club kind of night. We're, we're trying to make the Dale's Hotel experience. And there's- Something different. VIPs with room keys and it's being celebrity catered. There's a celebrity room service menu by the guy that does Sloan's. Nice. Um, yeah, uh, who's also behind, like, I think the W Jazz Night and a variety of things. And uh, we've got me and Brian and some of the Sayers House Band, which is like, you know, guys that play on Beyonce's records and stuff. Like, just this unbelievable Talent. shit hot, yeah, band. And we're going to be playing, you know, an hour and a half of covers music. And we're going to have a couple of uh, a couple of our friends come up and guests like we did on New Year's. Um, mm -hmm. It's really just uh, an excuse to get everybody together and play the music that we love and, and have a good time. Um, so if I go on Tuesday, what kind of celebrity guests are you going to have? You know, I'm sorry, Patrick, but the Dale's Hotel respects the privacy of its guests. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. What are you doing in Venice today? Uh, it was my little brother's birthday, Joe, my youngest little brother. Um, and my dad's wife's in from Australia. So it's a good excuse to get the fam together and all hang nice. out. Nice. Yeah. Well, it's been good talking to you. Maybe I'll see you more often this month, or are you going to be all over the place? I'm going to be all over the place until March 7th for the Dale's Hotel thing, but you should. You should I want to come. I want to check it out. It's it's going to be a really fun night. I like, bet. You're going to have a you're going to have a good time. So we'll look forward to it. So that's my episode with Matt Beckley. Thanks for listening. We appreciate all your notes, comments, and thoughts uh, that you've been giving us on Patreon.com. Thanks for following us, and thanks for your support. It means a lot to us. Without you, Tommy can't have way too much coffee. And we'll see you next time with an episode that, I don't know, might be about California. I'm still trying to figure it out. Everybody.